everybody. Uh, my name is Eric Johnson, and we're here running into the fog again with my brother, Derek Johnson. Hey, Derek. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great. And our special guest, Samuel Skip Halpern. Hey, Skip. How are you today? Hello, all. Welcome to Running Into the Fog. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. Uh, with that countdown, I feel like I was on a launching pad in <laughs> orbit now. <laughs> well, you know, we're pretty sophisticated out here in Wisconsin. It gets pretty, tell. pretty crazy. Well, I've really been looking forward to this uh, today, Skip. And by the way, uh, I've got a special announcement. Um, this very book is going to be raffled off during this hour. Now, you might be wondering how you enter the raffle. Well, uh, if you have been redeeming these, which are the POAPs, which are helping us to uh, spread the word on this, you finally will understand what the POAPs are for. Um, proof of attendance protocol NFTs are being used by us to help you to uh, figure out how to participate at a deeper level in what we're doing, uh, both in the live stream podcast, as well as other places. And uh, we, in about 33 minutes, we're gonna be running this raffle. Now I'm gonna take you real briefly through how this is going to work. So watch my screen and uh, very, very briefly, POAPs are the NFTs we're redeeming today. Here's an example from, of one from March. Uh, this was a contributor token that we gave away back in the middle of March. Now, I did not earn this specific token, um, but you're probably wondering how you redeem them. And you're going to need a crypto wallet of some kind. Now, Brave is a browser that has a crypto wallet built into it. And I'm just gonna demonstrate for you very quickly how to get to your Brave crypto wallet. Uh, I've set mine up and I can get into it here. And here you can see it's a brand new wallet. There are no assets in this wallet as of right now. In order to redeem a PO app, you wanna take your crypto wallet address, your public address, and then you're going to paste it in. This is a sample POAP from our time at Skip, Derek, by the way. Uh, if you did a social post at Skip, we gave you a POAP. And so I'm going to insert my wallet address here, and I'm going to mint that POAP to my wallet. So in the background, that POAP is now being added to my collection. And here on pending and congratulations. I now have uh, accepted, redeemed that POAP and you'll now see it in my POAP collection right there. Easy as pie, right? Derek, I bet you could even do that, right? I'm not so sure, but I'm ready to get into this podcast. So are we done here? We are. Awesome. Uh, so uh, that raffle for Skip's book um, you're going to need your PO apps here, and you're going to want to scan this QR code right here uh, in order to redeem it. So go ahead and, um, oops, oh, I've got to stop, stop sharing. There we go. Uh, go ahead and scan that uh, QR code, and uh, we'll be making that available later. So with that, Derek, do you want to kick us off here and introduce uh, Skip Halpern? I sure do. Um... First of all, Skip, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Um, you come to us from the Shenandoah 
Shenandoah Valley, just outside of Washington, D.C. Is that right? Correct. Yep. In Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, near D.C. Okay. Nice. Uh, I also have a copy of your book right in front of me. And I, for our listeners today, I want to start out by reading a couple excerpts. These come from the uh, Bernie Madoff chapter. Mm. Looking at page uh, 131 for anybody following along at home. So uh, work is play. According to Mark Twain, work consists of whatever a body is obliged to do. And play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. However, for many people, work is a form of play. Uh, you go on in that uh, particular uh, chapter to talk about Dr. Harry Markowitz, who's somebody I've actually studied a little bit about uh, in my training in yesteryear around the uh, investment principles that Markowitz put forward. And you close that particular excerpt with looking back on his career, Markowitz now explains on his website that I often consider work to be play. Mark Twain, notwithstanding, when work is fulfilling, the lines between work and play blur. And I wanted to start with that because it was a meaningful uh, portion of at least that chapter that I've taken in of your book, Skip. And this book, uh, Wellsprings of Work, you know, we're recording episode 37 here on the podcast today with you, uh, May the 24th of 2022. And I, I guess I'd like to start out by asking you a two-part question. How would you summarize the book for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with it? And who did you write that book for? Those are good questions. And thanks to both of you guys uh, for inviting me to this. And it sounds like you've really got a well-trod path here. Uh, I, I think it's a terrific uh, podcast you've got going. So openers uh, with thanks. The, the book is uh, consists of stories about uh, what makes work click for at least the fortunate people among us who really get into it. Uh, the fortunate enough to really enjoy what they do, uh, whether it's for a living, that is an occupation, could be a hobby, could be volunteering. I really wanted to consider work in a very broad sense. Um, the stories are really about the underlying psychic drives that can make work fulfilling for people, um, as well as some of the pitfalls and trap doors along the way. Um, the stories largely emanate from my own career. It's a combination of the investment world, uh, law and business, but not only. Um, and I use the stories as not ends in themselves, but as springboards to try to explain some of the larger concepts about work. So very quickly, one of the chapters you just cited, Derek, uh, is about work uh, in terms of play and competition. But I used an episode from analyzing and happily avoiding an investment with Bernie Madoff as an example of that, because what it really involved, as I look back on it, it was sort of a uh, mental arm wrestling match as we tried to work through uh, the hype surrounding uh, Madoff and a particular hedge fund of funds that had a very big position uh, with his particular fund. Um, and then I extrapolate from there to other types of work uh, that really, I think, bring out a sense of competition or a sense of play, um, which I think are very closely uh, interrelated. Um, and sometimes to just elaborate a little bit on what the chapter discusses, you know, there are many forms of this. So for example, I think a lot of people have an urge, whatever kind of work broadly defined they're doing, 
to achieve their personal best. I consider that a form of competition against oneself, but there is competition against others as well. And I recall in that chapter, uh, citing, for example, a professional hockey player, a uh, guy named Nest Eric Nestorenko, who talks about uh, forging your own identity by showing that you're better than the other guy. So that's a very different kind of play in competition. But I think both of those operate uh, frequently in the, in the work world. Um, in terms of audience, um, I, st I started with an audience of one, uh, which was myself, because I didn't initially intend to be writing a book. I intended to be trying to think through as I entered semi-retirement, um, what really motivated me? Why did I find my full-time career uh, so gratifying? Um, and as I got deeper into it, I thought, gee, you know, maybe I've really latched onto something here um, and it could apply to a range of other people. And by the end of the process with the final book, I'd say the audiences are defined really in two respects, one by age, one by type of work. By age, it runs the gamut. I've had a lot of people tell me that uh, those just beginning a work life on the verge of it or early in a career are finding it very helpful to make them think about what they're looking for, what they might get out of their careers. I've had people uh, midway through, people in their 40s and 50s um, tell me, boy, I wish I had read this 20 years ago. Um, and then I've had a, a lot of comments from people either on the edge of or into retirement saying, this really helps me think through what my own uh, life and my career uh, have been and how they've unfolded. Um, by occupation, I'd say it's across the gamut. The most obvious focus is the world from which the stories have emanated, uh, investing, business, law. Um, but this applies much more broadly because while the stories, I think, get each chapter going, I try to apply the concepts more broadly to all sorts of work, whether it's an architect or an engineer or a craftsperson. I think a lot of these concepts apply very broadly. Nice. Um, yeah, so back when you were working your professional career full-time, you know, as for our listeners, uh, you and I didn't intersect one-to-one, uh, -one, you know, like you did with Warren Buffett or some of those types of uh, characters in this book. But uh, actually the firm I worked for at the time, uh, how we got connected for today's podcast came through our mutual friend, Evan Weston. And uh, the right. fact, is, fact is, I used to fill out some of your questionnaires way back in the day um, <laughs> for IFS. So uh, it's kind of, a, kind of funny how the world revolves in a circle and eventually comes uh, full circle in that regard. Uh, Eric, what do you have uh, question-wise for Skip here in the opening half hour of our time? Well, you know, so apologies, by the way, I'm doing a few of these technical things in the background, and I want to you know, audibly, first of all, remind everybody that we're cutting you social live streamers, you anonymous folks, uh, the Russian botnet, Privyet, Rostiskaya, Sietvorobotov, that those folks are going to be going away at the half hour. So if you don't convert over and sign up to stay on this bridge, we're going to say goodbye. Um, and when we do, convert over. Uh, we're going to turn you, Skip, over to three of our contributors, up to three, anyway, during the, the second half, 
uh, for the unspeakable uh, half hour. And uh, I need volunteers for that. We need volunteers for that. So let us know in the chat if you'd like to be a contributor in the second half. My big question for you, Skip, is, you know, the pandemic really demonstrated for a lot of people how meaningless their work was. And uh, as they reflected on how they were spending their lives and as mortality seemed a little more immediate, uh, they quit en masse. Uh, a lot of people decided they were gonna go do something else. And this great resignation, as it's been called, uh, really took place at a time when uh, we were as a nation grappling with a lot of our identity issues. I mean, we had a very contentious presidential election. We are now trying to figure out America, what, what American hegemony means in a post-hegemonic world potentially. And all this stuff between Russia, China, Ukraine, Taiwan, all the uncertainty around baby formula for crying out loud. I mean, it seems like the chaos is worse than ever. And people often obsessed with their work are now turning to that work for meaning. So talk to us a little bit about the great resignation and how the search for meaningful work is explained, you know, by what you noticed in writing Wellsprings. Yeah, that's that's a big question with uh, many big answers. Um, sticking just narrowly with uh, the label you used, Eric, um, I think a lot of people have actually taken issue with that phrase, which has caught on the great resignation. Um, perhaps a better summary is the great reconfiguration. Um, I think a lot of people, and it's hard to get good empirical data on this, but a lot of people quit for, I'd say, uh, or moved on to other positions for uh, the most fundamental uh, material reasons. Gee, I can get better pay, I can get better benefits, I can have more flexible hours, I can have a more flexible uh, physical location, that sort of thing. Um, and that was especially true, I think, in uh, industries such as hospitality and leisure, restaurants, that sort of thing. Um, but some people clearly wanted to upgrade in terms of intangibles, or you might say alignment with values and purpose that were important to them, or helping them latch on to those kinds of meaning and purpose. Um, and I think that applies across the board. Um, I think uh, the most obvious is people early in a career um, who job jumped, um, looking for something better. But And probably a lot of people on this uh, podcast have read these accounts about people who hung up their spurs, maybe fearing COVID, uh, maybe otherwise. Um, and then as the pandemic has at least subsided some, have decided to go back in to the workforce because they realize there's something, some form of gratification that they get from applying themselves. Um, and one of the explanations, and there's a lot of press on this, was uh, an editorial I read maybe only two months ago, I think, uh, where the journalist was uh, wondering, uh, why do younger people uh, have less ambition? And the title was anti-ambition, as if people were less motivated to work. And uh, this, I believe, was in the New York Times, which has an online comment section. And the comment that garnered the most responses, and it really caught my eye, was from some guy named Sebastian. 
in Berlin and said, this is not anti-ambition, it's greater ambition and it's greater ambition for meaningful work. And I thought he really hit the nail on the head. And I think there are many, many cases of that where people want to have something more gratifying uh, in their job. I think the longer answer is in a section early in the book, in the introduction where I'm setting the stage. Uh, one section is called, Why Me? What led me personally to write this? Uh, but the next section, which is longer, is Why Now? And I, I think COVID is certainly a contributing factor because of all the dislocations and uh, gymnastics that people in the workforce have gone through and the people who employ them have gone through in the last couple of years. But I think there are some other current sorts of trends and one longer term trend. I think one long-term trend, and this is a subject for a book in and of itself, um, is culturally and societally the huge impact of science and, te and technology on our way of thinking and on our way of perceiving the world because the world of science so mathematically oriented um, is at once very abstract, meaning not concrete and paradoxically also I'd say very materialistic because in classical scientific thinking, higher states of mentality and spirituality and psychology are explained in a reductionist way, as opposed to mind and spirit. Uh, uh, many brain scientists speak in terms of brain function, chemical reactions, biochemical reactions. So the higher is explained in terms of the lower. I think that's very dehumanizing. Um, it sucks meaning right out of the world we inhabit. I'm not arguing the scientific merits of it for the moment. I'm talking about the impact on people seeking meaning. If meaning is just electrochemical brain function, it doesn't feel very meaningful if you get my drift. So I yeah. think that's a huge, long-term, very subtle uh, and pervasive uh, factor. I think disenchantment with institutions and we can all recount over the last 50 years uh, from small to large various episodes in this country's history that have caused many people to get disenchanted with their institution. So there's a common thread, I think, of being unmoored from mm -hmm. things. The gig economy is another example of being unmoored as opposed to working, whether it's in the Midwest or wherever, working for 40 years for the same employer with a defined benefit plan, at least the perception that it's a paternalistic company that cares for you. Uh, you got job security, you got job longevity. That's not the case now. You know, people juggling two or three jobs, gig economy, they're independent contractors. They might not even have a 401k plan, much less a defined benefit plan. I mean, that's a dinosaur at this point. Um, so I think all of those things and more, and it's described in this section called Why Now, uh, are part of that answer. Wow. That's amazing. You know, neurochemistry is one of my uh, passions. And, you know, most of the neurotransmitters in your brain are there to do one thing. 
and that's to alleviate the impact of cortisol as a stress hormone on you. Um, all of our appetites, all of our soothing uh, habits are driven by the elimination of cortisol, whether that's working out or drinking too much or hmm. we'll get into some of that other stuff in unspeakable, by the way, in the second half. Unspeakable, you can start cussing if you want to, uh, <laughs> uh, which Derek likes to do during us. Well, well, we have I, a first. Go ahead. I won't, I won't cuss, but I'll just quote a book title, which was a factor in my writing this book. And the book title was Bullshit Jobs. Right on. And it's written by a guy now deceased as a young man, actually, named David Graeber. I think he was a Brit. Um, and he was bemoaning all the soul-sucking, to use his term, deadening jobs out there. And I think the glass is definitely half full, but I wanted to talk about the ways in which the glass, uh, I, I think the glass is half full. He wrote about how it's half empty, and I wanted a rejoinder to his bullshit jobs. And I'll say that during the speaking part. <laughs> well, you're going to have Evan Weston as your first contributor in the second half. Uh, Evan stuck his hand up. So Evan, you're on deck. We need two more in the second half. So volunteers in the chat, please. Derek. What I'll, what I'll just add to that, Skip, you may know this story or some of our listeners may know this story, but when the pandemic hit, Eric and I <clears throat> essentially each took a segment of the business and started running with it. You know, uh, the, as the story goes, I was protecting the, the core to make sure that we were not going to get body blowed, you know, into oblivion. And Eric was uh, still operating in discovery. And that's a that's a really good balance between the two of us and our skill sets. Um, but it was causing some tension, you know, not not uh, all that favorable, by the way. Uh, between the Johnson brothers and thus the podcast concept was born so that we could uh, kind of going back to the the uh, quote I mentioned from your book you know uh, have it feel like work was play again between the the Joe bros if you will so you know that bullshit jobs I, I've said it before on this podcast you know if I'm if I uh, wanted to I could have gotten any old bullshit job out there um but I wanted to stay here and I wanted to work it through and, you know, have this podcast to be able to come to life with, with my big brother. The question I have for you, Skip, is, you know, going back to, I'll restate the obvious, Eric and I operate in this field of competitive strategy. And, you know, how can companies in today's world, with all the pressures, inflation, you know, job hopping to get a, a higher wage, et cetera, how can companies use the meaningful work principle as a competitive differentiator and if you were going to go about that strategy in corporate America what uh, positions within inside a company whether it be the chief operating officer or the HR team you know where would you try to situate such a capability if it were you that's a very uh Great question. Um, several answers. I'd say first and foremost, um, I wrote this book very uh, intentionally from the perspective of the individual worker, professional, non-professional, a lawyer, a waitress, whatever. And I was very consciously not proceeding from the perspective of management or the HR department. Uh, because I wanted to look at it, you might say, from an experiential perspective. What's it like? What does it feel like?
to be that worker, to be that employee. Having said that, I actually had a guy who years ago I dealt with who was an HR professional. Uh, and he's been at that for 30 plus years, was very involved with SHRM, uh, the Human Resource Management Group. Um, and he said, this book should be distributed to the HR department at a whole raft of firms. And then the HR department should hand it to their new, uh, not just brand new, but uh, recent recruits, recent employees, because it can be simultaneously helpful to the employee and derivatively, collaterally helpful to the HR department. And you know, there's an awful lot of hype out there. I guess in the environmental move movement, the equivalent would be greenwashing, uh, where it sounds good on the surface, but as they say, um, the superficiality runs deep. Um, if for the real thing, there's got to be an appreciation of what it's like for the working person, again, regardless of profession, does that person feel he or she gets respect on the job, that uh, he or she has some degree of autonomy, some degree of dignity, I'd say. And all of those words sound very platitudinous, um, but in the book, I try to get at a new, more nuanced level what that really means, what it's really like for the worker. There's a, there's a classic book, um, many of the people on the podcast may have heard of it. It was written about 50 years ago. It's called Working by a journalist out of Chicago, Studs Terkel. And it's really terrific. It's, it's a series of, God, I don't know, might be a couple hundred, two and three page interviews that Terkels did uh, with people all across the board, stockbrokers, parking lot attendants, uh, waitresses, professional athletes, you name it. Um, and some of those really stick in the mind. There was one of, of a waitress, um, and I recount this because I thought it was so indicative. Um, and thinking about it, not from the standpoint of the owner of the restaurant, but from the waitress herself, uh, some wise guy said to her, some customer said, um, gee, if you smile, I'll give you a tip. And she just sneered at him, said, I'm not doing this to get a tip. A tip is demeaning. A tip is like throwing me a bone. And that really stuck in my mind. And it gets to this, this notion uh, that I'm trying to explain of uh, respect or dignity. So I, and, and I think finally, uh, this HR guy who, who contacted me about the book, um, he said he found it helpful for himself not just in dispensing after people under in his employ, but for his own personal purposes and for his own career. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think there's absolutely something to it where, you know, if you do it right, culture and to your point, dignity, respect, uh, the autonomy that you can provide your, your workforce, you know, that can in certain climates overcome, you know, you hit a, a tough quarter, a tough series of quarters, and you need to retain those those staff members. If you play it correctly, and you respect them, obviously the financial compensation has to come along at some point. Sure. But you can you can use that as a key, not only attraction tool but also a retention strategy. You know when you do it, you know in 
a an authentic and um, you know staff driven sort of sort of focus. Yeah, and I think that's what I was trying to get at. I, I think I think that's right, and I I think of a this seems very far afield, but in my mind at least, warped as it is. Um, it seems very connected. The, the book does recount, you mentioned it in passing, um, a, uh, uh, an episode that I went through dealing with Warren Buffett. Um, and long story short, we as an independent fiduciary to a retiree medical fund uh, were in charge of about 57% of Kaiser Aluminum when it came out of bankruptcy in 2006. So we actually had voting control over the company once it was again public. Um, and uh, he was interested in buying control. And he contacted our firm and he went up the chain and he contacted me and I had a number of interchanges with him. And one, which I recount in the book, he called me one Wednesday, I wasn't in, he left a message. Uh, hi, Skip. This is Warren. It's Wednesday at one o'clock. Give me a call. And I saved that. On, I saved that on my recording machine. And years later, I thought, why did I save that? What was really going on there? And, uh, and I explained it in the book. I think it's an example of feeling like you've gotten some recognition or respect. Here was this guy, you know, this titan calling little old me. And it was that recognition or that respect, I realized, which was at the bottom of why I saved that message. So you take that lesson, I think, and you can apply it in many, many situations with many, many people. That's great. I see our chat is kind of blowing up with the studs turkle analogies and different things too. So Eric, I know we're gonna pivot here in a minute. What do you got? Yep, I got to... Uh say goodbye to the live streamers. Before we do that, however, I would like you to uh, scan this different QR code uh, right here and join us on the bridge. So if you're streaming on social right now, scan that code. It'll allow you to register and connect your crypto wallet if you'd like, and then join us here on the back end for Unspeakable.